Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Regular listeners will have heard the economist Mariana Mazzucato on this podcast before. She's spoken to George the Poet about modern-day moonshot programmes to transform the economy, and to the journalist Kamal Ahmed, where she offered a searing critique of the consulting industry. Mariana recently returned to How To Academy to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the groundbreaking book that launched her career in the public eye, The Entrepreneurial State. In it, she makes the controversial but compelling case that the state is not a bureaucratic machine standing in the way of free market innovation, but a powerful force for innovation in its own right. She was in conversation with Hannah McInnes. Hello everyone, good evening. Wonderful to see so many of you here making the best possible decision with what to do uh, with your Monday evening and welcome (laughs) to those who are watching from home. Of course, this event was inspired by the 10th anniversary of her book that we're going to be discussing, uh, The Entrepreneurial State, Debunking Public versus Private Sector Myths. Uh, It may be 10 years, but... As we'll discuss, it is as relevant and as pertinent as ever. And we're going to be hearing, I'm delighted to say, from the author about Mm -hmm. the role that governments can play in shaping the economy, and particularly in a world shaped by concerns about climate change and also, of course, the role uh, of AI. She's advised many policymakers all over the globe, but I am going to move to the discussion. And in fact, in terms of advising policymakers all over the globe, we're going to see a video uh, which really shows that. So let's begin with a video. Over the past decade, the ideas of the entrepreneurial state have been transformational in shaping global public policy narrative and direction. At UN Habitat, public sector-driven innovation is central to our work in promoting sustainable urban development across the globe. To my dear sister Marianne, I'm so happy to join you today in celebrating this special event for the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. I can attest to the fact that you, the IIPP, and the concept of the entrepreneurial state that you've given birth to have quite literally been at the bedrock of our own transformative process with your support. We have begun the process of systematically and comprehensively rethinking our role as a government championing sustainable and inclusive growth and positioning our own country for this journey. British Columbia is now a leader in the country. We had the strongest economic recovery in the entire country. And a lot of the ideas that we used were from Mariana. Such a great thing to be able to count on these inspiring ideas about the entrepreneurial estate, managing to get a much more relevant presence of renewable energy systems and trying to ensure that we can improve in management of fresh water. The work that the IIPP did to share knowledge about how the public sector can architect innovation for the public good and develop deep partnerships with civil society, with scientists, with enterprises is more critical than ever. In looking for an economics that reflects that idea, I chanced upon Mariana's book, The Entrepreneurial State, and I was so happy. That was a book that seemed to deal with real life, not with some sort of idealization, but with how things actually happen. The main uh, challenge Brazil has is to change the stage 
to offer product, innovation, technology to society and to the planet. Mariana Mazzucato influences all of the people that are thinking about a real development that includes people, the planet. Mariana and the IIPP have shifted thinking on the role a dynamic state can play in shaping the co-creating markets, and that includes the local state. And the results have been extraordinary. We've seen an unleashing of energy from our citizens, the public and private sector to solve some of the complex challenges we face. Creation is nearly always cooperative. It involves lots and lots of people. It can be done and it needs to be done. Congratulations to both Dr. Mazzucato and the Institute of Innovation and Public Purpose. For the work she's done, for her team, for partnering with us to support us in our economic recovery. From missions-based local government to new approaches to procurement and community investment. And I simply want you to have every success as you celebrate this very special occasion. On behalf of the people in government of Barbados, we say thank you. Very moving video. I feel like we should just begin by asking you to clarify what they're all talking about when they talk about and thank you for the entrepreneurial state. What is it and why did you write about it in this book? Sure. And first, I just want to thank you, Hannah, for being on stage because Hannah and I met and when we saw each other in the back, like, oh my God, uh, when she used to be a producer for Newsnight. And you explicitly tried to bring in more female voices and not just the tokenistic woman talking about gender stuff, right? It was about the kind of new economic thinking underpinning hopefully better policies. And it was when Newsnight had a mini bar. We just realized they no longer have one. Like, I don't know what's happened, but we I mean, used to hang out with Paul Mason and others and actually drink happily after, not anyway. Uh, so yes, we met back then. So. The original cover, we have so many covers here, including the Bosnian cover, which calls me Marijuana Masukato. <laughs> that is how my name is translated in Bosnian. Marijuana, not bad, Masukato. But the, <laughs> the original uh, cover, which is there, had a lion and a pussycat. And maybe I can just explain, because that actually goes to the center of why I wrote the book. So Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, in the early 30s, uh, when he was trying to advise uh, Roosevelt, who in the United States was trying to foster an economic recovery, right? We just heard the word recovery, post-COVID recovery, post-war recovery, post-financial crisis recovery. There was this massive attempt for recovery after the Great Depression. And Keynes, a very important economist, was trying to advise the nitty-gritty with Roosevelt, but he wrote him this open letter. So it wasn't a secret letter, I had access to it because it was open, and he said, we got a problem, right? Because what he had been advising him about was the need for counter-cyclical government. In other words, in bad times, instead of having the state to also retract, which means a recession goes into a depression because everyone is spending less, consumers are spending less in recessions, uh, businesses are investing less in recessions, and government until then, until Keynes and economics came about, was in bad times also spending less. So it literally meant, if you look at the data, you can see it, that every 15 to 20 years, we had great depressions. We all know the famous 1929 one, but if you look at the data for the 200 years preceding World War II, which kind of dates when kind of Keynes and economics became normal, you had these constant depressions. You had constant deflation, literally, like, you know, a bit of inflation is a consequence of having mild growth, and growth is stable when you have government, 
doing its job, which was what Keynes was trying to make happen, which is counter-cyclical investment. When everyone else is retracting, the thing to do is to do the opposite, right? So counter-cyclical spending. And he writes this letter to Roosevelt saying, you know what, it's actually going to be much harder than we thought because we're just assuming that there's this big desire to invest in the business community, right? Because they're trying to recover, they're trying to catalyze business investment, public investment, but especially business investment, which had fallen. He said, we got a problem. We've just assumed that these are like lions, tigers, wolves, lion, but actually they're a bunch of pussycats. <laughs> and what he meant was not like oh, a bunch of wussies and you know, like no one's investing and they're cats and they're gerbils and they're hamsters, they're not lions and wolves. He actually meant there's no desire to invest. There's actually no, what he then called, animal spirits. And so the book was really about why didn't we actually listen to Keynes? That what we actually need is not just counter-cyclical investment, and we definitely need that. When you have austerity, by the way, it means you have pro-cyclical investment. Uh, you know, governments cutting back in bad times in order to recover. Um, and austerity doesn't work, and even the IMF and the World Bank have woken up to it. But what Keynes meant, and what I think he meant, is that you need to actually pay attention to the design of policies and the design of government to really catalyze a wave, increase the expectations of future investment opportunities. And if you speak to businesses, and I often do from my work, they say, at least the ones that talk openly about what drives their real investment, and not just when they're asking for less tax, less red tape, and so on, is they invest when they see a real opportunity. And if you read Keynes in between the lines, and I think he was very misunderstood, as was Adam Smith. Adam Smith talked about the free market not as free from the state, but free from economic rents. What Keynes actually desired, and that we didn't ha actually end up with, is progressive policies that, yes, are counter-cyclical, but even in the boom, you want kind of catalytic policies that really drive public, private, third sector investments towards what is good. Right, what we need in society. So if we want inclusive and sustainable growth, we're not just gonna get there by talking about it. We're not gonna solve the sustainable development goals, the 17 goals that we've had since 2015 by just signing up to them, right? What does it mean for how we steer public and private? And always remember, it's not just public and private, but it's easier if we, for the sake of tonight, we just call, call it public and private, public and private investment, innovation, and so on. So that was one reason I wrote it, because I really felt that an economic theory, that insight that Keynes had, which is that actually, in society, there isn't often this desire to invest, and we need to actually create that desire, excite, catalyze, through smart government policy, the perception of where these incredibly interesting opportunities might be around health, around climate, around reducing the digital divide, again, the SDGs, which came later. But also, I wrote the pamphlet version. Sorry, we agreed that my first answer to the question would be very long, so. She will interrupt me at some point, but the first thing was supposed to be some sort of 10-minute pitch. So this is part of the 10 minutes. Um, that I wrote the pamphlet version, which is not very strategic when you're writing a book, to write a pamphlet version of your book with the exact same title, free on the web. <laughs> yeah, never thought about that. Anyway, in 2011, which, as you'll remember, was one year after David Cameron, who's back, uh, <laughs> uh, won, yeah, the election, and we began this massive wave of austerity in this country, in the United Kingdom. Why, why do I say in this country? Because not every part of the world did that. In fact, the United States, definitely not a perfect part of the world, but they actually had a huge fiscal stimulus 
after the financial crisis, spending over 800 billion in a fiscal stimulus to recover. And instead here, the crisis globally was caused by private debt, but we blamed public debt and just obsessed about this need to cut government spending in order to kind of stimulate not only a recovery, but the words that were being used was like a more competitive economy, a more innovative economy. There was also at the same time this whole global debate about why are all the Googles and Amazons and, and Facebooks in the US and you know, why don't we have more of those in, in Europe and surely we just need more venture capital, right? So they, there was all this like discussion about how do we create in Europe, but also in the UK a more kind of data-driven, digital, Silicon Valley kind of economy. We ended up with Silicon Roundabout and the east of London. And so I wrote the book also, not just to kind of push that interesting kind of Keynes plus Schumpeter economic theory, but to say, excuse me? <laughs> you want a more innovative, competitive, investment-driven, you know, Silicon Valley kind of economy? Do you have any clue where Silicon Valley came from? huge amounts of public spending. So if you're going to justify austerity, don't justify it by using these kind of mythologies about Silicon Valley, because one of the chapters then in the book version, because I did smartly then create a book in 2013, hence the 10th anniversary, from that initial just pamphlet. And the reason I wrote the pamphlet was almost like a political pamphleteering. It ended up getting sent, I think, to 30,000 people through Demos. I did it with Demos, when Kitty Usher was still head of Demos. But I kind of broke down what Silicon Valley was in the book, in order to make that argument that if you're gonna use that metaphor, or even just innovation, then hello, maybe study a bit about what actually happened in that part of the world. There's a chapter on the iPhone, everything that makes your smartphones, doesn't have to be an iPhone, Huawei phones are quite good too, everything that makes your smartphone smart and not stupid was publicly financed. You know, internet, GPS, touchscreen, Siri. Then what we needed was a, you know, a great company like Apple who brought in all these you know, musicians as well as in designers. It wasn't just computer geeks to kind of think about the design of the phone, the simplicity of it, and how to bring in, embed within this beautifully designed phone, which we all seem to want to spend a lot of money on, this you know, publicly financed technology. And that part of the story was not part of the Silicon Valley story. The Silicon Valley story that people heard and tried to emulate in both the global north and the global south was, oh, we just need a lot of kind of basic research, publicly financed through National Science Foundation type institutions, here through different types of bodies like UKRI or any sort of public funds, and then just let venture capital in the private sector kind of, you know, commercialize it. What actually happened in Silicon Valley is there was this decentralized network decentralized, it wasn't just one big state, decentralized network of what I call entrepreneurial state organizations, from DARPA, which funded the internet, to InQtel, the CIA's very large venture capital fund, to SBIR programs, which are small business innovation research programs, which make every government department in the United States spend three to five percent of their budgets on catalyzing bottom-up innovations from small and medium enterprises to procurement policies, again, not just SBIR, but these are all kind of demand-side policies. So basic research, applied research, basic research is NSF, applied research would be like DARPA, InQtel, SBIR is the patient long-term finance, but also in the history of the United States, they had kind of bold demand-side policies that included suburbanization, which allowed mass production 
technologies to actually diffuse throughout the economy. So the point of the book was not, oh, isn't the US great? It's don't use Silicon Valley and the need to become more innovative and competitive like the US to justify austerity. The work that then I did later, fast forward to these quotes, was, well, that's not enough because the US is a pretty messed up country. In fact, they ended up funding, even under Reagan, the entrepreneurial state. So the NIH, for example, the National Institutes of Health, which continue just this year, last year, spending 40 billion of taxpayer money on health innovation. These kind of entities, and NIH was one of the ones I talked about in the book, they can't just be putting a lot of public money in to fund technological change without actually also overseeing whether it ends up being good for people and planet. And you don't need me to come here and tell you that the US is not exactly one of the healthiest and, you know, countries in terms of making sure that people in the US actually have access to this publicly financed technology. In fact, the prices of the drugs the medicines that are funded by the public sector in the U.S. don't reflect that public sector contribution at all. The way that prices are set in the U.S. for U.S. Uh, medicines are, is through value-based pricing, which, to make a long story short, it's let the prices go to what the market will bear, which is infinity, and then the state comes in through Medicare Medicaid, might subsidize it for some people, insurance might subsidize it, and when they come to countries like the U.K., the NHS subsidizes it. But the prices aren't right to begin with. They're not reflecting you know, that, that, that public contribution. So the book is also saying it's not enough to just have like a military industrial complex to justify this public investment in technology and innovation. First of all, we haven't had the equivalent amount of investment in societal innovations. Again, the military industrial complex organizations are the ones I cited for you before, the DARPA's Defense Department's uh, Advanced Research Agency, the InQtel, again, the CIA's you know, Public Venture Capital Fund. We haven't, in the US, applied that similar kind of outcomes orientation to societal problems. And second, even in the military industrial complex funded problems, we haven't then designed the system to make sure that kind of, again, long story short, people and planet actually benefit from it. So then in the work with countries globally, but also the reason I set up the Institute, at some point you gotta stop me, um, the idea was what are then the lessons for the design of policy? What does it mean to make sure that we're actually thinking about the public sector, first of all, is just even being part of the value creation machine, not just as a market fixer, but also a market shaper. And if, if you haven't studied economics, let me just tell you the way we justify policy in economics is purely through a framing of fixing market failures, whereas the entrepreneurial state examples I give throughout the book, not just in the US, it was the state actually shaping markets, creating markets. Think about the BBC in this country. It has problems, it's not perfect, but the BBC has actually shaped the broadcasting market. It hasn't just facilitated others to interact in it. What does it mean for how we design tools like procurement. My recent book, Mission Economy, looked at how the NASA program would never have worked. We would have never gotten a man on the moon, a woman on the moon today, without having outcomes-oriented procurement policy, which then really drove so many different sectors in nutrition, materials, electronics, to work with NASA, 400,000 people, not just in the state, in the private sector, worked with NASA on that very difficult problem a lot of bottom-up innovation by actually taking care to design policy to catalyze those animal spirits in all those different sectors, camera phones, foil blankets, baby formula, software, so on and so forth. 
What does it mean for culture within our civil service? You know, why is it that we embrace risk-taking, uncertainty, experimentation in the private sector, and as soon as a civil servant makes a mistake, front page of the Daily Mail? So how do we both hold the state accountable, it's not risk-taking for the sake of risk-taking, but with kind of strong public value metrics, for example. Again, I come back to the BBC because the BBC actually has a public value metric, which very few public organizations do. So just lastly, because I have to let Hannah get a question in, the book was not about romanticizing the state. I'm from Italy, believe me. I know when the state doesn't work. The reason we have the mafia is because the state didn't work. I could tell you the whole history about the mafia, but that would take us into another conversation. Um, so it's not about romanticizing the state. It's not about saying the state is entrepreneurial. Many states are not entrepreneurial. Uh, Rosie Collington and I, a PhD student, just wrote a book about the massive outsourcing we've had to consulting companies, for example, within state institutions. That doesn't make them more entrepreneurial when they're not investing within their own brain. So there's all sorts of both ideological but just practical reasons that states have become inertial, more bureaucratic, their remits are literally explicitly to be business-friendly, to catalyze business, to de-risk business, to facilitate business, to enable business. It's, like, it's a recipe for getting screwed, basically, <laughs> in terms of the contracts. And it's interesting that the military-industrial complex, when they want to win wars, they're very careful on the contracts. They don't get messed around by big pharma or whoever. So it's really a call for action if we care about the sustainable development goals, if we care about health, inequality. I've got friends in the audience like Maggie who works on FGM, female genital mutilation, a huge problem globally. What does it mean for the structure of policy, for the structure of the civil service to work with others, yeah, in a mission-oriented way, in an entrepreneurial way, meaning you've got to take risks. You need to embrace that underlying uncertainty as opposed to be constantly in this fixing, facilitating, enabling mode and which then causes a massive hemorrhaging from state institutions to the private sector, because if one is called risk-taking and the other one is a de-risker, where would you rather work? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. I don't know why you... <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> 
I'm very happy not to ask any questions because everyone, as I said at the start, has very much come here to hear from you. Mm. We, we, but we watched the video, we saw much thanks from people across the world. But in my introduction, I said, and the reason we're here is not a sort of anniversary, that was then, this is now, and they're yeah. two very separate times. It's because, as I said, it's still very relevant. And is that frustrating? Do you wish that 10 years on, people had taken that advice? Does the fact that it's relevant show governments aren't doing what they should mm. be doing? So I, I think it's, it's a really good question, but I think there's two sides of it. One is, is it still relevant? And I think it's more relevant than ever, especially when you have, just let's talk about this country for a minute, both sides of the political spectrum. <laughs> One side, we don't have to go into the details, but being incredibly problematic, but the other side, because it's being accused of not being fiscally responsible <laughs> is like putting forth policies and then saying, oh, but we're not going to do too much of it because it's going to cost too much money. That's not an entrepreneurial state, right? It's not saying, here's some huge problems in this country and we're going to go after them. We're going to invest with public money and yes, it's going to you know, cost us, but over time, this is going to stimulate investment, innovation in a problem-oriented way, which will increase business investment in a country here where investment is lower than OECD average, right? Remember GDP, I would go off on tangents, but GDP, how we measure growth in economics, can be divided in different ways. One is through demand, so consumption spending, business investment spending, government investment, and net exports. In this country, the business investment, comes back to the Keynes quote, um, is quite low. We have profits without production. We have a hugely financialized business sector. So you should have, let's just call it the opposition, because in some ways it should be the, the party that's trying to win the election, right? That says, you know what? We got a huge investment problem here. And we need bold public investment that's going to go after all these different problems from the really local ones like knife crime to the national ones, for some reason this keeps falling, like, um, you know, actually truly being uh, a net zero country, all the different cities, the regions, and the country, and so on. We're going to not only invest in public services, but make them incredibly innovative. Uh, like, you know, school meals can be healthy, tasty, and sustainable, or they can just be school meals. What does that mean for the supply chain? What does it mean for how companies work with governments to produce an innovative outcome? That dialogue just does not seem to be there. So I think the entrepreneurial state could actually help the upcoming election in this country be much more about what's to be done than how little you're going to spend on it to show that you're fiscally responsible. Uh, but also, the problems we're currently facing, uh, my team has put a lot of propaganda here for me. Thank you very much, team. Uh, but for example, one of the commissions I'm currently running is um, co-chairing with Tarman Shangmutaran, by the way, who's now the president of Singapore. When we made the video, he was still just uh, ex-finance minister, current senior minister. He's now the president of Singapore. With Ngozi Okonjo-Wila, who used to be the finance minister of Nigeria, now the head of the WTO, and Johan Rockström, who I think is one of the best climate scientists, is this commission on, what is it called? The Global Commission on the Economics of Water. And the idea is that the global hydrological cycle, yeah, is a collective problem. It's collective in the sense that deforestation of the Amazon, for example, in Brazil, has been directly shown to be causing droughts and floods in other parts of the world. Are we actually going after this problem collectively? Do we have nationalistic policies that just create a problem somewhere else, like we had with the vaccine, right? You don't solve a global health pandemic by having vaccine nationalism, uh, especially because it's a global problem. You need to stop the you know, problem globally or it comes back to bite. 
Um, so also on the global scale, there's increasing talk about working together. The UN talks about a common agenda as well as the SDGs. But if we don't have a way to work together towards solving those problems, and even having what I call a common good approach, which is my latest, my, my new book that I'm just starting to write is on the economics of the common good, but just coming back to the entrepreneurial state, if we don't have a clear remit for what state action should look like, which is not just about a carbon tax, it's not just fixing market failures, whether they're positive or negative externalities, um, so a negative externalities like pollution, government might come in and do a carbon tax, positive externalities when governments try to correct for the lack of of, of, of private investment in an area, so government will step in. Um, so instead of thinking about externalities and market failure fixing, what does it mean to underlying all these policies to shape and create markets, create the economy in a different way? So that idea that these global goals require new economic thinking and not just a bit of incremental better policies here and there, I think is more important than ever because, as the IPCC report, which is the big international climate change report that comes out every year, is telling us, it's almost too late. We've almost lost the opportunity to take action on climate. We had, 10 years ago, they said we had 10 years left, <laughs> um, and we haven't met the targets. But if, then, the action means simply to incentivize someone else to take the action, to facilitate others, to create the tax incentives, uh, for others to take action without really learning the lessons from the entrepreneurial state, with that, without bold public investment, which actually increases the perceptions of where these future opportunities lie, and to transform challenges, which mean difficulties, into opportunities for innovation, which all the SDGs are the challenges, how to transform them, like the moon landing was transformed into all those different homework problems that got us the camera phones, foil blankets, baby formula software. If we don't think like that, then it's by design, not by coincidence, by design that we fail. By design, we are worried. If you are by design at best thinking about fixing a market failure, you're always in negative mode. You're worried about where things are failing, as opposed to what kind of society do we want to live in? You know, what is the economy? It's an outcome of how we govern all the different institutions, public and private, and how they work together. There's no economic forces determining how business acts. You know, businesses don't do $7 trillion in share buyback schemes, which is what they've done, buying back their shares to boost stock prices, stock options, and executive pay, because the market, the boogeyman, is telling them they have to do that. These are decisions. Look at any sector, telecoms, Cisco, super financialized company, Ericsson isn't. They can govern the private sector in a particular way. And my book has been, my books have been about how do we govern public institutions in this kind of more mission-oriented, entrepreneurial state way, which can both set a direction in democratically elected you know, societies, so I'm talking about where governments are not there to just tell everyone what to do, but are elected and can help foster change that society, through different democratic fora, say they want. I, I think this is needed more than ever precisely because these challenges which have been there for a long time, they're just on the border of almost being, you know, at the point of no return. Um, and Greta Thornburg, you know, teenager, and I know many of you have kids, I've got kids, they are fed up with us just talking, right? What does it mean to walk the talk? I think putting these problems, whether it's gender parity, whether it's digital issues, the digital divide, or the problems we're facing today with AI, whether it's climate, whether it's health systems, at the center, not at the periphery, 
of how we design our economies at the center of a purpose-oriented economy, hence the you know, name of the institute I set up at UCL, at the center of how we think about the civil service and welcoming experimentation and the underlying uncertainty that underlies all these problems, this is a huge task. And by the way, one of the problems I'm most interested in right now, and, and again, the reason I set up the Institute, is this decimation of capacity within the civil service, which isn't just budgets. Budgets come and go. You can put money in, and then you take money out, you put money in again. If along the way you're kind of making people working inside the state structure just feel like crap, because all the excitement is, you know, look at space. Elon Musk, and you know, that's where all the energy and the excitement and the creativity is, and NASA is described as this big kind of dinosaur, you can bet that a lot of people in NASA start leaving, and that's what's happened. Um, you can bet that if the best that NASA can do since the 1990s is have a commercialization charter, where it literally looks like the role of NASA is to commercialize space, as opposed to you know, go after those crazy missions that then required 400,000 people in the private sector to work with them, which caused commercialization. If commercialization becomes the mission, if economic growth becomes the mission, surprise, surprise, you don't even get commercialization or economic growth. And that, by the way, was my message to Keir Starmer when he took on my missions approach, you know, cited it as the reason he did the five missions, and I was like, but <laughs> growth is one of your missions? That's not what we're talking about. An entrepreneurial state doesn't say, we're gonna go out there and be really entrepreneurial on growth. It's entrepreneurial about solving big, ambitious public problems. And if you do it well, surprise, surprise, growth is an outcome. But is that growth is, is so embedded as a narrative, growth for growth's sake, as you say it shouldn't be. So you're trying to change and hoping for to change something that is just so embedded, the idea that you want to grow for growth's sake? I mean, so I once got in trouble because I was on a panel at Friends of the Earth, is that a, a yeah, um, with a bunch of people who don't believe in growth, of which one is um, quite famous, Tim Jackson, and I said, and, and I forgot that all the people in the audience were, were no growth. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, no growth, that's for the bobo. Like, who are the bobo? La bourgeoisie bohème. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, it's very luxurious to talk about no growth when you have so many people in the world that are not only unemployed or when they're employed, they're underemployed, uh, when uh, you know, incomes are so badly distributed, when a huge number of people in the world don't even have access to a clean uh, glass of water, talking about no growth is a luxury. My view is we need a radical transformation in how we achieve growth. We need a very different way to even calculate the growth. You know, GDP makes no sense. If you marry your babysitter, GDP goes down. Don't marry your babysitter. Um, if you pollute, <laughs> GDP goes up, right? So if, you're, if the babysitter point is, you know, if, if someone was caring either for the elderly or for the kids in the home, and now you marry them, a man or a woman, we won't make this gender specific, um, and now they're still doing the same exact work but not being paid for it, um, it's not counted. So we only count what is paid for. Um, and if you confuse price with value, this was the whole point of my book, The Value of Everything, you end up with this tautology where someone like Lloyd Blankfein, the head of, um, of Goldman Sachs, could say after the financial crisis, after he was bailed out by $10 billion, uh, that Goldman Sachs workers were the most productive in the world because yes, they're most well paid, and if you confuse price with value, they look like they're most productive. 
So if we measure growth and productivity in problematic ways, if we grow through just making more stuff, more goods, more services that consume more, of course growth is bad. If you also grow, by the way, forget even the goods and services in the way the UK has grown, which is consumption-led growth, not investment-led growth, and that consumption is fueled by private debt, private debt, again, all that obsession about public debt, which is the reason I wrote the book, uh, it was actually private debt that caused the financial crisis, and if you make it easier for people to buy homes, you know, all these ease-to-buy schemes, why? If their incomes aren't going up, why are you getting people to buy homes they can't afford? That's literally what caused the financial crisis. If you look at how some other countries have organized, for example, their housing, it's through so social housing and other ways of getting you know, housing for people that's not just by indebting them up to here. Because the irony is people do go bankrupt, right? In a country like the UK that has its own sovereign currency, you could actually look at government budgets in a very different way that's not looking at it like a family household budget. But families do go bankrupt. If you go way over the top of what you can afford, you will go bankrupt. And the financial crisis globally was caused by uh, private debt. And today, you would think that the Tories and Labour and the run-up to the election would be talking about this. The ratio of private debt in this country to disposable income is back at the level at what it was before the financial crisis burst. So we are on the verge of having, hate to tell you this, another financial crisis. So what should government do about growth? Surely it should change how we measure it. We just have one number. Not only do we need a better number, and I've written quite a lot about that, but it, you, you never just need one number. If you're driving a car and you have one number, how fast are you going? Or how much gas do you have? What happens? You crash. How do we, you know, you need a dashboard, <laughs> right? So lots of different numbers. So one question is not only that the GDP number is problematic for all sorts of reasons feminist economists and environmental economists have told us is problematic, but we need a dashboard. And the SDGs, by the way, should definitely be part of that dashboard or guide that dashboard. But the other thing is, coming back to the entrepreneurial state and fast forwarding on some of the work I've been doing with these uh, women and men that we just heard, is how do you then create an entrepreneurial state where it's not just about risk-taking, it's not even just about the public good, but it's about confidence, right? Why is the military so confident when it deals with the pharmaceutical industry? And what do I mean by that? Soldiers get sick on the battlefield, so a lot of the health spending sometimes even gets uh, done by the Department of Defense, and I've looked at how they work with intellectual property rights and prices, it's very different. Um, so what does it mean, for example, to have a growth agenda that is A, driven by big public problems like net zero, but then has the confidence right, to make sure that every penny, every euro, every pound, every peso, every dollar of public money, whether it's a subsidy, a guarantee, a COVID bailout, or public loan, is conditional on businesses. Why am I talking about businesses? Because we live in capitalism. If we lived in feudalism, I would talk about the agricultural landlords. If we lived in socialism, I would talk about something else. But businesses do their job in helping to achieve the goal. So there's some examples of this. It's just that they're always peripheral. So in Germany, once they actually had their Energiewende policy, they made sure that the loans being given to the steel sector, and we need steel to build stuff, was conditional on steel reducing the material content of its production to make steel. And they did it, not because they went to Davos, you know, where people go to talk about the good that they're gonna do in business, but because they had to, to get one penny out of the government. So the loan 
created for the steel sector was conditional on German steel reducing the material content of production, which they did through repurpose, reuse, recycle. So the government didn't tell them how to do it. That's micromanaging. You kill innovation. But there was a strong direction, and the loan was conditional on that. Denmark. Denmark today is the number one country providing high-tech green digital services to China, which is spending $4 trillion in dematerializing and reducing their carbon emissions. Why? Because they have a massive pollution problem. You know, China gets a lot of bad rap, but China is currently the number one country in terms of trying to really transform its incredibly polluted economy into a greener one. And Denmark is servicing it. Denmark is tiny, 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 tiny. People sometimes get, you know, say, oh, you're just talking about the big, you know, China and the U.S. Literally, look at how big Denmark is. It's, it's not much bigger than the greater metro, uh, London uh, metropolitan region, and they have fueled what I would call an entrepreneurial state-led hub of innovative startups. Forget startups as a word, because startups is, is, is a bogus word. Like, what's the point of starting up? You want to scale up, right? So these startups in Denmark scaled up because Copenhagen wanted to be the most green city in the world, and they ended up, oh, I've got a Danish friend right there, Naya. <laughs> Head of digital for BBC. Uh, so I'm going to embarrass all my friends. I just have to see you. I can only see the front row. So <laughs> it's common. Uh, Denmark began with a mission to have the greenest city, Copenhagen. The startups first started actually working with Vestas, a big manufacturing company in Denmark, renewable energy, servicing some of the services they needed for the manufacturing industry. But increasingly, they started to work with the city, and the cities have lots of leverage. They can have, again, you know, demand-side procurement, for example, for certain things they need. And they ended up building this incredibly innovative um, kind of tech, high-tech uh, digital services um, innovation hub, which today is, again, fueling the services that are required by a massive economy in China to go green. So what does this mean? Growth, for growth's sake, doesn't work. We end up with consumption-led, private debt-driven growth, or we end up with a fossil fuel-driven, investment-led growth economy. The whole point of having a mission-oriented entrepreneurial state is to say, how can we actually fuel public and private investment driven by public goals, but make sure that every leverage that government has, like the public loans, the KFW loan that I mentioned, like uh, outcomes-oriented procurement, which I mentioned with NASA, like the subsidies and guarantees, like in COVID, there was lots of bailouts given to companies because they weren't flying you know, in the air. In some countries, they made that conditional on reducing carbon emissions. In the UK, we gave $600 million, sorry, pounds, forgot, sorry, uh, to EasyJet, no conditions attached. So making sure that we never waste a pound <laughs> that is not helping to direct without micromanaging industry to go in the right direction is, I'd say, good growth. But one question you haven't asked me, which does become a conversation between me and me, is who decides what those you know, goals are? So the reason I love working with people like Georgia Gould, who's the leader of Camden Council where I live, is a lot of the work in Camden that we did together through the Camden Renewal Commission was actually about getting citizens, people, to the table to set these missions in the first place, which then Camden's own local entrepreneurial state helped to catalyze. So for example, the people living in housing estates, the resident associations were central to the green mission, clean growth mission in Camden, which is currently nested across 10 social housing estates. So citizen participation, citizen assemblies, resident associations, that I think is the most exciting stuff. And don't listen to an economist because we don't do that. Like, 
I'm learning when I work with Camden on what does it mean to do true citizen participation, what does it mean to transform food banks, which you'll know have increased due to rising inequality into green food cooperatives, so the people benefiting from the food banks are also in charge, helps with you know, the self-worth and dignity, which sometimes is not there wrongly, I think, because if you're using a food bank, you should use the food bank and not feel humiliated, but people do feel humiliated. So putting the people in charge of actually making the decisions and running the food bank through a cooperative model. And Keynes, by the way, who I, I mentioned is misunderstood, a great chapter at the end of the general theory was, um, it wasn't even a whole chapter, it was like three lines, which I think people need to revive, which is about the socialization of investment. And what he meant was precisely this kind of cooperative model of organizations, the mutualistic, the mutual design of organizations, it's something that we should be thinking about if we really care about inclusive growth. It's not just about counter-cyclical investment. It's not just about UBI schemes. It's not just about the entrepreneurial state, but having more social forms of the organizations themselves, like uh, cooperatives. It's something he started to toy with, but then he never really explored it. I mean, that's you mentioned all the way through, and this was 10 years ago, inclusivity and involving citizens, as you're talking about, which is something that really struck me. And hearing you now talk about work you're doing, that sounds like something that didn't used to happen, but that is happening, that importance of involving people, because people don't feel like they have agency, and that is one of the biggest problems. Definitely, and if you think of, um, it, it's really actually interesting because I'm working with different governments that are really focused on climate, but their biggest problem is crime. Uh, in Barbados, in Chile, uh, I'm working with President Boric, or we're talking very closely with their government, and when you have a society that is unequal, you will have a large percentage of the population in the UK, in London, in Camden, in Barbados, in Delhi, that a, is not even involved in value creation because they are not valued, they're not being invested in, their social structures are not being invested in, uh, but also people get really pissed off. Um, pissed in American means you're angry, in this country means you're drunk. So I meant the American, they're mad, <laughs> angry, <laughs> right? So if you feel like your own life has no value, it's much easier to kill someone. So what does it mean, for example, to tackle the social and economic determinants of crime and of health, something that Michael Marmot at University College London has been thinking a lot about? You need to be investing in those institutions and in those structures that are good for people, <laughs> right? That make them feel valued. And having that perspective on crime, which is something that inspired, I think, the Glasgow uh, knife crime uh, team, which then uh, London has tried to start thinking about, is actually about not just because you talked about participation, but what comes even before participation is making sure that people have been invested in so they can participate. Amartya Sen talked about this in terms of his distinction. He's a Nobel Prize winning uh, economist, but he actually is like a proper economist, so he's also a historian and a philosopher. Um, and he talked about the need to emphasize capabilities. So if people, people don't have opportunities, there's no opportunity to be involved and participate in an economy if you don't have the capabilities, if you also don't have you know, a roof over your head, if you don't have kind of basic health, if you've not been invested in in terms of your education, then all this opportunity of the 21st century, the knowledge economy, AI, data, you know, uh, the new economy as, as we used to call it is, is just blah, it's, it's just not true. So I think participation in that kind of co-creation sense of who's at the table, designing some of these policies, or at least those different interests, is one part of it. But if those people 
at the table, haven't been invested in themselves, the social structures, the communities in which they live. Uh, one of my um, most interest, or I shouldn't say, that sounds competitive, uh, a very smart PhD student I have, I won't say the best, is George the Poet. Do you know his work, George Mapanga? Yeah, he's incredible. It's really hard to supervise him because supervisors will just be really like, oh, you're not doing your work and come on, man. I'm just like, oh my God, you're so smart. <laughs> so he won the Peabody Award, excellent podcast. I recommend you all. Um, listen to it. His work is really interesting because it looks at this issue, his PhD um, at the Institute. Um, in fact, two of his podcasts uh, episodes reflect on what he's doing the PhD on and he uh, even recorded my voice and I have the, well, you're hearing my voice. So anyway, it's embarrassing when you hear your own voice on someone's podcast, but he, his PhD is super interesting. He says, look at rap, look at hip hop. It's a trillion dollar industry globally. And as with so much black music, it was created by communities that then created this massive wealth and value. And so little of that value was reinvested back into the communities that created that value in the first place. And he kind of takes that as a big question and breaks it down into, won't go into all the sub-questions of his PhD, but that's, that's the history of so much of our economy. Mm -hmm. That it's, again, been collectively created, but we've ended up socializing risks and privatizing rewards. Mm -hmm. And what is that? And, and that's a key chapter in the entrepreneurial state. What would it look like to socialize the risks and to socialize the rewards? And what do we mean by that? And how George is looking at that in, hap in rap and hip-hop is very different from how someone might look at that in health systems, but that underlying question you know, has a parallel and, and fostering, by the way, these cross-sectoral, cross-area discussions is something that, uh, that we do in the Institute, which, which is probably the most inspiring stuff. I mean, I have so many more questions, but I'm sure many of them people can read the answers to in the entrepreneurial state. Just before I give the microphone over to you, I do really want to ask how it can work, how it can sort of last when governments are changing and fluid and flexible. If someone comes in who gets it right very quickly, the pendulum swings and the person in charge does it differently. So how can the entrepreneurial sort of survive different yeah. leaders with different ideas? It's a great question. And even though I often talk about the short-termism in the private sector, there's just, a much, just as much short-termism you know, often in the public sector, which shouldn't in theory, right? Like a public bank, the reason we're interested in public finance is that long-term patient finance, not that three-year exit-driven, say, venture capital cycle. Um, but there's a lot of short-termism within our public institutions precisely because of the electoral cycle and so on. So I think there's two parts of that that I've tried to tackle just in my work. One is actually, again, setting up the institute. It's about the education. If we actually change the way we even think about the state, not as, not as market fixing, but market shaping, but also the curriculum, literally the curriculum, what is studied, the education within the civil service, around these ideas, which I won't rehash because then my answer will again be 20 minutes long and not as quick as it should be for a quick question. You know, that's a big part of the question. So it's impossible to have better policy without changing kind of the mindset. And if you change the mindsets, that will last beyond that political cycle because even though the minister might change, and I've worked, I've lived in this country, oh my God, when did I move here? 1998. Um, and lots has happened in this country since then, but literally the main ministry, which I've tended to work with in the UK, has changed its name five times. 
and, 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 and it's not like everything, like almost nothing. I think it costs, someone calculated once, over 15 million just to change the stationery. You know, every time you change the government department's name, the, the slogans, the logos, the posters, all that kind of stuff. So I've witnessed this short-termism. The ministers, Greg Clark, who you heard in the video, was the minister that I worked with to turn the UK industrial strategy from being sector-focused they were just giving out money to pharmaceuticals, life sciences, autos, aerospace, finance, and the creative sector. You know, what does it mean to say it's not about sectors to give out all these subsidies, but problems that then through conditionalities, all your sectors go after together. We worked on that, and then the government actually changed. It's great when they listen to these four challenges, clean growth, healthy aging, sustainable mobility, and the data economy. It was great, and then Brexit happened. All those people that they hired for those challenge teams went over to the Brexit office, basically. It wasn't that simple, but it was quite depressing to see. So that short-termism, the constant change for the reasons you say, A, there's that civil service kind of rethink, but also changing some of the organizations. You know, when I mentioned DARPA as being key, um, it was a key institution that I looked at in the entrepreneurial state, how DARPA's been set up it's, it's almost set up on purpose to be kind of long-term minded. It's the people come in for five years and it, those five years don't coincide with the four years of the electoral cycle. So there's a stability to it. And it's designed ex ante to be kind of problem solving. The reason we have the internet is not because someone said we need the internet, it's because DARPA had a problem, it needed the satellites to communicate, the internet was the answer. The reason we have GPS, which I talked about, is not because someone said, we need GPS. The Navy needed to know where all the ships were <laughs> in the ocean. So much of those big technological changes have come from problem-oriented institutions. So I think this is another aspect. The more we had purpose-oriented, problem-oriented public organizations worried about also social problems, like reducing the digital divide to zero, so at the next lockdown, every kid continues to have their you know, right to, to education, it's, I think that's also part of it. So it's the institutional and organizational design within our public sectors, and that rethinking, literally rewriting the education for the civil service, not to see themselves as just facilitators, enablers, market fixers, and all this pressure to be business friendly in order to show you're serious, but to actually work in an ambitious way with business around the big public problems and to be held accountable to those problems with public value and public interest tests, which are very, very weak. And again, it's really striking that the BBC has a public value metric and a public interest test, which almost no other public organization I know has in a, in a rigorous way. You talked about the BBC. Just actually, yeah, I, no, I think why. I can't ask, ask any more questions because I, I will get in trouble because you've all come and you will have questions of your own. But perhaps while we're going, the media have a huge role to play in this, don't they, in the way they describe the state and the state's role? Yeah. But I, it's, it's, it's all so interconnected. I mean, I think, um, first of all, depend, you know, in every country, the media is structured in different ways. The fact that in some countries, you'll have a Silvio Berlusconi or Rupert Murdoch owning half or three quarters of the media, obviously, is different from, you know, other, so we shouldn't just say the media, yeah. you know, yeah. ownership issues matter. But also, there's a, a give and take. There's this, um, when I wrote The Value of Everything, I began it with this uh, quote, which I attributed to Plato, and I later realized it was actually a Native American saying, <laughs> anyway, uh, that storytellers rule the world. Well, right. Plato said it too, but anyway. So the stories we tell yeah. really, really matter. And of course, the media tell a lot of stories. 
And that story that Blankfein told, that Goldman Sachs workers were the most productive in the world. Do you ever hear a teacher saying, I'm productive, I'm a wealth creator? Of course, they're extremely important to society. They create immense amount of, of value, but who has the confidence to call themselves a value creator and a wealth creator is about the stories we tell. And the media, again, are a key player in that, but they're not the only players. And a lot of what I've looked at is how economic theory becomes self you know, you get these vicious cycles instead of virtuous cycles because these stories we tell then affect, again, the confidence in the room. Right. Even in countries like the US where you have yeah. entrepreneurial state institutions, they then don't have the confidence to see through what's good for people. When Obama set up Obamacare after years of people, including Hillary Clinton when she was first lady, tried to set up a kind of a socialized, you know, healthcare insurance, he finally sets it up and he doesn't have the story. So when he was accused of meddling in people's health care, he said, oh yeah, but it's the right thing to do because there's 60 million people uninsured and you know, I'm, I'm in public office and I'm progressive and it's, he basically gave a social democratic, uh, which is a good thing, but still a social democratic response. You know, people aren't insured, of course we need social insurance. What he should have said was change the story, like meddling? What are you talking about? 75% of new molecular entities with priority rating were funded by the public sector. Of course, we'll make sure that people have access to this stuff that we've created. So the creation narrative, the wealth creation narrative is currently captured in terms of the story yeah. by kind of you know particular ways to tell that story. And I've always found it so curious how little progressive slash center left politicians and parties try to retell that story of where wealth comes from. Because if you're always gonna talk about wealth distribution and redistribution and have no narrative and story of wealth creation, it's, it's gonna be extremely hard to drive an economy in a, a direction that's inclusive. Yeah, it's really interesting. You say, um, you know, if you want to emulate the US, do what they actually did, yeah. not what they said they did. So it's all about the story they told. Okay, um, could you keep your um, questions, questions, just brief, so we can get through as many as possible. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm a Chivning Scholar from Kazakhstan. Uh, I'm an LSC uh, alumnus. I have a quick question. So I guess the recipe is there. So we all know, on a personal level, we all know how to get well, you know, go to gym, exercise. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you also have a recipe for the states, how the state should behave to be more entrepreneurial, to be more effective, to be more up-to-date, why are there so few entrepreneurial states? So what blocks the execution? Thank you. Hi, I would like to ask you, um, you have mentioned a lot of use, um, examples from uh, DARPA, from United States and so on, but also you have mentioned that uh, China has invested a lot in uh, anti-pollution policies and so on. Uh, is there an example we can take from the Chinese government uh, in terms of uh, an example of an entrepreneurial state? Um, thank you for those questions. Uh, really, really good ones. The first one, um, first of all, you talked about recipes and it's really important to realize that this is not like a recipe. It's not like do X and Y and then you'll end up with Z. It's actually very difficult. 
And you know, we have business schools that talk about the difficulty of creating value in business. They even have you know, great books like Rejuvenating the Mature Corporation. Why? Because when companies get big and bureaucratic, they get slow and you want to rejuvenate them. GM you know, had this huge change in General Motors and their multi-divisional company, whereas the state, when it gets big and bureaucratic, we just roll our eyes and say, oh, the state. You know, bureaucracy, red tape, Kafka, right? So how actually to rejuvenate, to think out of the box, to render flexible and agile our public institutions is incredibly important, but it has to be underpinned also with a completely different vision of what the state is for. There's no reason to invest in those capabilities, for example, that, that we talk about so much in the Institute, the dynamic capabilities of the public sector if all they're there is to facilitate, de-risk, enable someone else. You just need a bunch of bandages. Right? So that's where you get the self-fulfilling prophecy. The capabilities you start investing in are the ones you think you need for what you think you're for. Right? So changing that is, is, is actually difficult. And that's why we even, need, even, not only, need a new education, a new structure, a new a risk-taking, instead of risk-averseness and, and de-risking. I hate that word. You know, Kennedy said we're doing it because it's hard, not because it's easy. That meant embracing uncertainty together. and meant thinking of all the homework problems that had to be solved to get to the moon and back. It was not about facilitating, which means making something easier. But what holds it back is both that lack of investment within those capabilities, and the reason I wrote the big con, how the consulting industry has infantilized our governments, weakened our businesses, and warped our economies, is because there's been this massive outsourcing of that capacity. So we need to reverse that. But that is currently the state of play in many countries, a very weak state capacity, also a captured state capacity, and that would be the second point. There's huge amounts of lobbying done to keep states actually not very capable. Why? If you are, I'm gonna mention them, Pfizer. Uh, I often tell my husband if I don't come at home at night, it's, it was Pfizer, because I've been <laughs> ranting against Pfizer for probably 30 years now. Uh, Pfizer is one of the most financialized companies in the, in the world, spends much more on share buybacks is, than on R&D, is really wed to the bottom line um, in terms of quarterly profits, didn't agree, unlike AstraZeneca did when they worked with Oxford on the AstraZeneca vaccine. AstraZeneca agreed because Oxford put it as a condition, publicly financed researchers, state school, <laughs> Oxford is a state school, it's not a private school, they put the conditions to keep patents weak, to share the knowledge, to keep costs and prices low. AstraZeneca agreed because that was the deal, Pfizer didn't, right? There's lots of money to be made by not agreeing not only the conditions, but from keeping the narrative, coming back to not just the media, but the stories we tell, if the narrative continues to be Innovation is all done by pharmaceutical companies, and you touch anything like intellectual property rights and you will kill innovation, then of course, people are like, <gasps> don't mess with the property rights because that's gonna make, mean that we, that we don't innovate, we don't compete, we don't grow. As soon as you start debunking, hence the title, the title of the book is The Entrepreneurial State Debunking Public Versus Private Sector Myths. Debunking, actually I have to read that, I forgot the subtitle. Uh, debunking that myth about that all the innovation is in the private sector. Of course it's in the private sector, but it's also, or should be, can be in the public sector and how they work together around those goals is key. There are billions, there are trillions made by making sure the story is not that story. 
And I'm not saying, I mean, sometimes I do think there's a conspiracy, but I, I don't believe in conspiracies. It's not a conspiracy. It's part of the story that we should all, again, why I set up a whole institute as opposed to just a bunch of TED Talks on books, is we need a new movement. We need a new theory. We need new students. We need a different way of thinking about the civil servants to change that story and that framing. But those two things, I would say, lack of capacity and capabilities, the decimation, the outsourcing, the purposeful. Again, neoliberal economics to me was not about austerity, it was about reducing the remit of what the state was for in the first place, which then you know, doesn't justify any of the capacity and capabilities and the lobbying. Um, and the second question on DARPA, so let me just be clear, first of all, my work's kind of moved on, but in this book that I wrote 10 years ago, the reason I focused on DARPA and the US was to say, all of you countries, just as much in the developing countries and the developed countries that are obsessing about Silicon Valley and setting up their own Silicon roundabouts, joked about that in London, but there's literally a Silicon roundabout, uh, make sure you actually understand what happened there so you're learning the right lessons and not the wrong lessons. What's the wrong lesson? Just need less red tape, less tax. I mean, DARPA was set up in 1954 when Eisenhower, who was not a communist, <laughs> he was a Republican military general, was president, and the top marginal taxation rate in the US government when DARPA and NASA were set up was 91%. Not a communist. <laughs> or, you know, uh, uh, my favorite is Warren Buffett, another guy who's not a communist, the richest guy in the, in the world, basically after Elon, let's not go there, I can, we can talk about, oh, I got lots to tell you about Elon Musk, he got five billion from the US government, never said thank you. Anyway, Warren Buffett often says, stop reducing my tax. I don't even look at it, I invest when I see an opportunity. So the actual machinery that created all this value in the US was not the state stepping aside. It was a very active state, however, it ended up fostering huge amounts of inequality I mean, the book is about debunking where innovation comes from. If you also want that innovation to lead to inclusive growth and sustainable growth, don't look at the US. <laughs> it's not inclusive. It's one of the most unequal countries in the world. I'm very proud to be a European. Um, Italian, live in the UK. Is the UK in Europe? No, or sort of, maybe, not really. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to live in a civilized part of the world where you don't die because, you know, you die not because you can't afford the medicine, which is what happens in the US. It's barbaric, literally barbaric. Um, go to San Francisco and, and just see what it means to live in an incredibly unequal society. So the book was about debunking where the US innovation machinery that so many countries globally from small countries in the global south to large countries around the world to India, China, and so on. What was interesting about China, coming to your question, I actually did an interview about this with the FT magazine called The Banker some years ago. I said, China's interesting because they're actually the only place that is really looking at the US and trying to emulate at least you know, that idea of, of, of an active kind of public hand on the innovation side. So they're, they're learning what the innovation, what the US did at the same time that the US is unlearning what it did. What's interesting in China, I talked in my first 10 minutes or however long it was, about the decentralized network of public institutions across the whole innovation chain, which happened in Silicon Valley, the DARPAs, the NIHs, the, the SBIRs, the NQTELs. It wasn't just the state big 
brother doing everything. In China, what you currently have, where they have a very active uh, kind of state hand trying to stimulate a more capitalist <laughs> uh, system, is you have very, very large entities like the Chinese Development Bank, CDB. There's a great book about them by two Bloomberg journalists. It's called the China Development Bank colon, changing the rules of finance, or something like that, where they look at the huge guaranteed loans that companies like Huawei got. And Huawei had something like, I think it was an $8 billion loan guaranteed from the Chinese government. Without that, they wouldn't have existed. Again, Elon Musk got $5 billion <laughs> uh, from the government in different forms across Tesla, SpaceX, and SolarCity. So the forms of subsidy are different, but they're both public. What's interesting about China is whether it will learn, in quotes, this more decentralized form, because we know that one of the problems of just having large public entities is they do get kind of you know, bureaucratic inertial and so on. But the bigger question in my recent work is not so much about how do we make the state innovative as though that's it, itself the ambition. The ambition is creating a planet, a city, a region, a country that is good. And what do we mean by good? That's where we need debate. That's where we need the democratic fora. The sustainable development goals, those 17 goals I talked about in the beginning, didn't just come down from either heaven or for some bureaucrat at the United Nations. They were actually negotiated. There was huge amounts of stakeholder discussion about what those goals should be. Once countries sign up to them, they should then be interpreted right, locally, at the city level, at the regional, at the national, through, through debate, especially, that would be the third actual question of how do you create the stability that you ask, make sure it's actually nested within some level of consensus. The green consensus in Germany is interesting because it came from the green movement. It wasn't about the state telling everyone what was good for them. So movements, social movements. The reason we have weekends, the reason we have holidays, the reasons that children don't work in factories <laughs> is because of the labor movement, right? So the labor movement, the green movement, the student movement, these have all been incredibly important to help us steer societies in better ways. We also have goals that might be set from the United Nations and so on, but these are different kind of forces though that then should land. And my question has been, well, what is then the state's role in making sure that we get there? And it's definitely not through the current type of economic theory that we have, which is about market fixing. Hi. So social workers oh. are some of the most purpose-driven public sector people. Yes. If you had an afternoon with some newly qualified social workers, mm. what would you tell them to encourage them to understand that they have a role as wealth creators, to take pride in their role as wealth creators, and to go out into the organizations and the wider society to tell that story, their story of wealth creation. Thank you. How confident are you in democracy as a delivery means for your brilliant ideas? And I have in mind the recent election results in Argentina. I'm just worried that people are just too daft. Thank you for that. I loved it that you talked about stories. Please, Hannah, can this be made into a podcast? I have 15 grandchildren, I have six children, and I want every single one of them to hear it. And then I want to send it to cousins, friends. It's not a joke, because where do we find the language to defend ourselves? And every single word that you've been saying today is magic. 
It's absolute magic. And we don't hear it in the street. We don't yeah. hear it in the newspapers. Okay, that's it. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank but you. But can I just say that first question, and I mean, maybe I'm just emotional because I'm exhausted, but I almost want to cry, yes, like, from that question. Because yeah. I... Thank you. Like, oh, try not to cry. I agree with you so much. Like, who gets to be counted? And if you think about all the problems that we've gone through, and I mean, you know, if, if I think of not just the word social work, but people working in communities, the people dedicating so much time even just to coach these kind of sports clubs that are often for, you know, underprivileged kids, but give them a sense of belonging. But when they're properly finance, which these clubs never are, when they become systemic, to really give people a sense of belonging so you don't end up joining a gang, say, to, to give you that sense of belonging, that work is not valued, let alone the teachers that I mentioned that don't go around calling themselves wealth creators. But the first thing I would do with a social worker would be to listen. I mean, there's nothing. I, I mean, we have so little listening, you know, and empathy. There's that great RSA video, the difference between sympathy and empathy. And empathy is actually listening. And believe me, economists don't listen. <laughs> we just go around, pop, pop, pop. you saw how good we are. Pop, 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 pop. So just shut up and listen. Um, but the work that we did in Camden, so with Georgia Gould, for, those, for anyone who came in late, we showed this nice little video where everyone's like, oh, we like her work. So it was just so that you guys would believe me. The book's good. Read it, because they say it's good. Uh, but one of those people, you know, like we have the, the president of Singapore and the prime minister of Myanmar, but Georgia Gould, is my leader in Camden. I, I live in Camden, I've lived there 25 years. My kids have all gone to state schools in Camden from elementary school to, to high school. And um, so what we did in Camden was first to set up this Camden Renewal Commission. So setting up then these four missions of which one was about uh, food, one was on youth, one was on diversity of decision making. So Camden would actually have decision making processes as diverse as the community and one on the clean growth focus on the social housing. But then we went a next step to say, well, what does that mean for the council? How does it work? And the most interesting was working with social care workers who helped us think about what does outcomes-oriented procurement look like? Again, we would have never gone to the moon without NASA deciding to change procurement from being cost plus, which means just charge me anything and I don't know what I'm doing and I'll pay the bill and my deficit will go up, to challenge-oriented fixed-price procurement with incentives for quality and innovation improvement, but the idea was let's focus it on, a, on an example. We sandboxed it around social care in Camden housing estates. And the first thing was to get the social workers, the people working on social care, at the table thinking about this outcomes-oriented procurement for social, mainly adult care inside uh, vulnerable homes and particular housing estates. And that's about voice. Like literally all these policies I talk about in the entrepreneurial state and mission economy, that could just be very top down. And so if you're not actually then designing the policies with the people, and I'm, I'm not saying with the people in a populist kind of way, with the people experiencing those policies, if the people designing welfare have never been on welfare benefits, if the people designing digital governance have never used a web platform to access their welfare payments or their driver's license, how will they know how to design that system in a way that makes sense to the people using it, right? So, First of all, social care workers are incredibly important for our social fabric. Just like with climate change, the cost of inaction is so much greater than the cost of action. You know, properly investing in care, which is you know, bigger than just social care, but care workers would have made the cost of COVID so much lower 
right? There were so many excess deaths. Because, uh, Madeline is here. She wrote this amazing, Madeline Bunting. By the way, sorry, before I couldn't see, so Naya's there. That's Chris. Anyway, sorry. So Madeline Bunting, who's here, has written an amazing book on care and the stories you told about care and caring. Literally, if we valued that, our society would be so much also more innovative because everyone could actually take part, right? But forget the innovation side, the social fabric would be so much stronger. And we know it costs less to invest in a young person in terms of their education and everything that surrounds them than to imprison them. Literally, forget the fact that we should care about people. It costs less. It costs less if we just cared about the economics to invest in people than to let them fall through the cracks and pick up the bill on crime or, or, or criminal justice or all the other consequences of that. But we don't do that. So is it because we're stupid or do we just not care? You know, and, I, and unfortunately, I think a lot of bad policies are not because people just don't realize how to do it in a better mission-oriented way. It's just there's some people we just don't care about. We don't think they're important, right? I mean, that's the only answer I can give myself when I've actually you know, worked also with lots of policymakers who I know understand the underlying problem but, but continue to prioritize other areas and not areas like social care. And B's question, uh, B Rollout, who's a wonderful, with Justin Rollout there, uh, <laughs> trying to embarrass you, listen to me. The, the question of democracy, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And, you know, the kind of populism we've seen this week in Argentina, but hey, again, I'm from Italy, look at our government. I'm proud to be fascist government. And I'm not even saying it myself. They are proud to be fascist. Like, literally, Meloni comes from, you know, the kind of Mussolini, uh, you know, party, anyway, this gets too political, but anyway, um, in other words, it's not an adjective, it's just a fact that I'm using. The fact that we have increasingly extremist uh, parties winning elections, I think it's easy to dismiss that unless we start looking at that underlying inequality that afflicts so many of these different societies. I know that in Italy, for example, the reason so many people just got extremely angry and started to vote for either the Movimento di Cinque Stelle, the anarchist group, or for the extreme right, is after 10 years of enforced, again, austerity, which we also had here post-financial crisis where everything was cut in order to keep deficits low. They even were running a surplus at one point. Surprise, surprise, debt to GDP rose because all the investments we needed by both public and private weren't happening to grow the denominator of debt to GDP. So it didn't even work on economic grounds, but we had these massive cuts. We also got rid of so many different labor uh, regulations where then the so-called working class, you know, just that word that people use to describe a whole sector of the population that has not been benefiting from uh, particular policies. There's lots of anger. So I think, again, comes back to the show I made on crime. If we don't really start investing, but in a participatory way, so the information of how to invest is informed by people from the question about social care, those details matter. If we stop, if, if, if we don't really invest in our society and the social fabric, we will continue to be getting these, you know, very problematic um, uh, outcomes. And yes, we can talk about democracy. I even talked about citizen assemblies and, you know, resident associations, but, you know, that has to be happening, as I said before, hand in hand with investing in people's well-being, in those capabilities that Amartya Sen talks about. He says there's no opportunity. All this modern, you know, capitalist knowledge economy doesn't exist if we haven't invested in people's basic capabilities. And I think in so many different societies in both the developed and developing world, you have so many people who've just been dismissed 
and not have been invested in. And it's not surprising then that we get this very antagonistic voting structures. Look at where you know Trump is being elected, or you know the the pro-Trump you know votes are in many societies that have just been sorry parts of the U.S. that have really really been left behind. And I don't want to say it in a too condescending way because it does sound a bit condescending. But if we don't tackle these deep ingrained social and economic inequalities, it's impossible to have democracy. I'm very sad to genuinely say we've gone over by quite quite a few minutes, but perhaps we're going to have to do part two and invite you out, Mariana, to carry on. <laughs> and it is a, it will be a podcast. Um, it's being recorded and it will be released as a podcast. So you can send it to all your grandchildren and children. Thank you very much. But Mariana, thank you so much um, for that. It's wonderful to hear from you. So interesting to have you here. And thank you all very much. And thank you for your brilliant questions. Sorry not to get through all of them. Thank you. This episode starred Mariana Mazzucatu and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Georgia Athelsey and the show is made by me and Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, why not rate, review and subscribe? If you didn't, forget I just said that. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>